Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Heroku in the Wild series. Hi, I'm Corey Martin, a customer solutions architect at Heroku. Today, we're talking about building apps in the Internet of Things, or IoT. Joining me are Brandon Stewart and Yuri Oliveira. They work at NAR, a software consultancy where Brandon is founder and product lead, and Yuri is software engineer. One of their projects is a large Internet of Things application. We'll talk about how they built it and how they view the larger IoT space. Brandon, Yuri, welcome to Codish. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah, glad to be here. Okay, so I want to start with the basics. I've seen the Internet of Things mentioned. I have some Nest products in my home, but I've never actually spoken with someone who works in this space. So what is IoT, Brandon? I'd say IoT is stuffs on the Internet, some object that's sending you some sort of data that then you could see and monitor uh, online. And what are some examples, both of you, that we would know from our everyday lives? The Nest thermostat is probably like one of the bigger ones, at least in the U.S., where you could set certain temperatures at certain times to control the temperature in your home. And that object is connected over Wi-Fi. That would be probably one of the more popular examples. So, well, um, I think Android, it can be an IoT device as well. Even though we don't we don't see it because it's more of a general purpose um, device, it can be, be used uh, as an IoT device too. Okay, so you built a product for a company named RMS Intermodal, and they're a freight transportation company. Could you explain that industry? A few years ago, I actually didn't even know what Intermodal was. And it's the concept of transporting a shipping container with different vehicle types. So you could use a boat or a train or a truck or any combination of those. And what RMS is doing is they sort of work on the operations logistics side inside these rail hubs. So there's a bunch of hubs throughout the United States where trains come into, and then those loads of containers need to be unloaded or loaded as quickly as possible. They do other things as well, but that's definitely a large chunk of their business. And um, it's actually, they're, they're moving more now than, than ever before. So it's, there's more stuff going across trains than uh, recent years. So this is really powering a lot of our shipping infrastructure. Definitely. And you built a product for RMS named Intermodal. Would you explain what that product does? Yeah, so the idea is it was actually um, John Gray's the uh, president over at RMS Intermodal and his son had come to us and had asked about tracking in the yard and just being able to see things better. Because right now, um, what the managers had been doing was drive around in a truck with a radio and they would sort of corral the troops as they unloaded from one track or the other. And it's, it's a rather large yard. So um, they could be at the north end or the south end, and you, you would literally need to cruise around in a vehicle. 
And so the main objective in the beginning um, was to look at this live picture of the yard and to sort of see everything buzzing around kind of like a hive. And it has some, some similarities to like maybe Uber or Lyft in that regard, mm. where you could sort of see who's doing what and what their activity is and maybe when they started that. And then that's how a manager could, could make a better decision. So that's kind of one portion of it. And then the other part of it is looking at yesterday's activity and recent activity in order to sort of pull something from the data to understand, hey, how, how could we have actually loaded or unloaded differently here? Or how is the morning shift or the evening shift doing something um, that we could learn from? So it's this sort of two-part thing where they wanted to increase productivity and have a smoother operation. So we have this live picture of it, and then we have this sort of analytical uh, or data analysis portion of it. So what is the experience of a driver using the intermodal product? So something that's different about a driver with this application versus a driver that may be delivering for Amazon or FedEx is that those drivers actually don't get out on the open road and head down the freeway and get off and head south and then turn left. They're within this large yard that's kind of like a big open construction site. So for the driver, we wanted to make it so that they would basically just do one or two steps and then everything else would be in the background. And one of the things that they used to do is that they used to have a vehicle checkout report, uh, VCR, which would be very similar to when you go and rent a car at a rental car place. You know how you have to Mm -hmm. check the car out and you walk around it to make sure there's no damage? Yep, yep. They do that same process, but they used to do it on paper. And so then they'd hand that over to the mechanic. And if there's anything that they need to check out, replace some tires or lights or something like this, then the mechanics know that um, they need to check that out later on that vehicle. Or sometimes if it's more serious, they'll take the vehicle down. So that's kind of the only step that the driver does for the most part. They log in, they say, hey, are there any problems or not? Record the engine hours of the vehicle. And then that starts a session for the driver. And that's sort of the driver's perspective of what's taking place in the application. So the drivers in the yard are using your app on these Samsung tablets and the vehicles. What about the managers who are monitoring what's happening and making sure that everything's on track? How do they use your platform? So it's definitely different for managers. When managers log in, as of right now, they could log into the tablet and be out out in the yard themselves, or they could log in from the browser. And when they log in, they see the live map first. And so they could see various colors and different shapes that correlate with different vehicle types and statuses. And then they could select these individuals or tag these individuals to see who might be working in one area and better monitor that individual or to see what they had been doing recently. And then from there, they could navigate into other places in the application, like they could do a quick audit on somebody if they'd like to. Um, They could see what happened yesterday for productivity. They could check that person's activity for the past month. Uh, And these are some of the various things that could uh, be seen and done from the manager's perspective. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the tech. Seems like there are many pieces here. There's the driver app, the manager app, a web interface, sensors with a lot of signals output from those uh, to your 
your stack. So I, there's a lot to talk about here, but starting from the beginning, how do you even start building something like this? So it was a couple months of research before we even started. We we went to the yards and just watched and we interviewed the managers and we sent out surveys using SurveyMonkey and we just did a lot of homework and discovery to like see you know like what is this problem that that's one of the things that i've noticed is that sometimes when when people describe their problems whether it's job related or not there's a lens that they've put over the problem and in order to sort of tease out where the value in a solution could come from there's a good amount of uh, studying that needs to go in there. And I, like I said before, didn't have any experience specifically with intermodal. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a, a good amount of learning in the beginning and just documenting what we see as their process and then passing that to the client saying, okay, so th is this how it's done? I actually had made a diagram of like the steps that are taken to load and unload and then matching that with the terminology that they call inbound and outbound and then different move types that are done with the containers, whether you're placing, loading, unloading, clearing. Um, so to understand their vocabulary, to understand what their current pain points are, to make sure that you're on the same page as to declaring the problem and declaring the solution, that was done for about two, three months before we actually started. Started building. Started building, yeah. There was definitely, I mean, there's some generic things that were for sure in there. Like, you know, we knew that we'd have to host somewhere. That's why we're here. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, uh, yeah. We knew that uh, there would be users and we knew that there would be sessions, but we didn't really know like what a session would look like for a user and like what would be in there. So it was just like rough drafting a spec doc for a couple months with some simple um, use cases and user flows to make sure that we were aligned with what the client was seeing. I want to do a bit of a hypothetical. Say I'm a signal from a sensor in one of the vehicles and I start there and then I take a journey to your infrastructure. What is my journey? It's a bit of a funny question, but, but what is the signal's journey? Well, all of our tablets are um, Android ones, and uh, they're working on uh, 3G and 4G networks. As they are very, sometimes they can be in a very remote places um, across the US. Uh, we have to rely on uh, 3G and 4G networks. And they mostly, uh, as a signal, you would part uh, from the sensors. Uh, we collect um, 10 uh, data points on each tablet every two seconds. And uh, you would be collected you'd be centered across the, the G network uh, through an HTTP request. Then you would hit a lot of routers across the internet and stuff like that until you hit um, the Heroku uh, API. I think it's, uh, it's Cowboy, if I'm not wrong. And then from then on, uh, you would be inside our uh, core infrastructure. We have some uh, node clusters. We have something around... Um, eight node nodes on uh, on our infrastructure. And uh, we're dealing, uh, as of today, we're dealing with uh, something around um, 100 and 100 something requests per second. Mm -hmm. So you, you, would, you would enter this infrastructure 
and uh, depending on uh, which signal you are, uh, uh, if you're a data point signal coming from the sensor, you would go to the, the Kafka. So you would you would produce uh, data for, for our Kafka broker and uh, you'd be there until our consumer uh, gets you. And then uh, you'd probably go to Postgres. Uh, if you're not coming uh, as a sensor data, if you're not a signal uh, from the the tablet, if you're coming, I'm, I don't know, from the browser or from the manager tablet, you would go uh, straight to the, the Postgres. So Yuri, you mentioned Kafka, which I'm spending some of my time in as a signal here. What made you decide to use Kafka in this case? Well, uh, in the beginning, we didn't use Kafka, uh, even Redis. Uh, we started in a small uh, yard in Oakland, California. So as we scaled up in, in the company and we scaled up for um, into more yards, Brandon came to us uh, once and said, uh, how about dealing with uh, a thousand vehicles online, a thousand vehicles sending uh, 10 data points of sensor data every second or every two seconds. We needed a solution that uh, could be reliable where uh, we would be able to store data for uh, some time, for a period of time, uh, in case of anything bad happens and bad things happen sometimes. We, des- we, we decided for, uh, for Kafka because of its uh, capabilities and if its uh, robustness. How do you aggregate that data and then present it to, say, a manager who just wants a summary of what's going on? And how do you stay performant while you do that? As Brandon was saying earlier, we have um, a table that gets uh, all the sensor data after Kafka processes it. We have three models of table because we aggregate them in time. Like imagine that uh, one device sends uh, sensor data every two seconds or something around that because there can be uh, a 3G or or 4G uh, network offline and latency and things like that. So we, we get all this data, say, for a minute, and then we create another um, data from it. We just um, accumulate it uh, so we can have a bigger spectrum in time. You know? And uh, from this, we can also have an aggregate matrix. So say, like, um, a driver has not, hasn't been driving for uh, the past um, two hours. And uh, he should because uh, the train is there and the manager knows the train is there. And uh, we get the, his sensor data and then we aggregate it into a bigger um, table. And from that, we can know that this guy has been um, slacking or idle for a, a certain amount of time. After that, for especially for the web app, we've been using Redis a lot to cache data. Uh, especially as we are um, creating more metrics to learn more about the uh, driver's performance and uh, how they've been performing in time, like for the past 90 days and uh, a whole yard for the past nine days. We've been using Redis and we've been using uh, somewhat of um, background jobs. We, we use uh, Heroku Scheduler a lot uh, to run some background jobs and to do some um, heavy calculation. So it sounds like between Heroku Postgres, Heroku Redis, Heroku Schedule, or Apache Kafka on Heroku, you're 
using pretty much Heroku native tools uh, that are available right on the platform for most of your infrastructure, it sounds like. Yeah, I think from outside of Heroku we're using, I think, um, yeah, it's mostly AWS S3 and uh, AWS SQS because we do some uh, imports. We import some uh, data from uh, the train companies and even from RMS as well or from their uh, internal systems. We're becoming kind of um, a proxy a gateway where we aggregate uh, not just uh, the sensor data, it's, it's, it's our core, but we are also starting to aggregate um, data from other systems and integrating with uh, different systems, being um, shifts uh, system or um, railroad systems. And it sounds like you're really leaning on Postgres to manage all of this aggregated data. Are you doing the aggregations sort of in an app and then loading them to the database? Is it aggregations by query? How do you, what's the mechanism for essentially turning in a lot of data and individual signals or from other systems into quickly queryable data? Part of this aggregation we do um, in the Kafka consumer. So yeah, we do some some calculation in memory because when we get uh, Kafka data, we don't just uh, pass them through Postgres um, at once. We wait, we accumulate some data and uh, we do some aggregation and and heavy calculations in memory um, in the Kafka consumer before bulking, creating the rows in Postgres. Uh, that's for the, the sensor data. For the other uh, kinds of data that we receive um, from the company in other systems, uh, we have the SQS query. Uh, this consumer uh, downloads the files. We, we, we deal with a lot of uh, CSV and spreadsheets uh, mm-hmm. in parts. And uh, we, we do some calculation there as well. And then we save on Postgres. In Postgres itself, we use uh, PostGIS a lot, the extension, uh-huh. because um, as we're dealing with uh, with yard maps and um, as we're dealing with uh, drivers' movements inside yards, it's very helpful to have sort of uh, zones and polygons in the map so we can um, derive and uh, have a bearing sight about the data that we are receiving. PostGIS is a Postgres extension to deal with the geographic data. We lean on it a lot. We've been leaning it on for the past two years. Um, we've recently upgraded um, Postgres from version uh, nine to 12 and PostGIS for uh, two to three as well. And uh, it's been great, uh, sometimes challenging, but very interesting to work with it as well. So one thing that I personally really like about what you're talking about is that you're using these really um, well-established open source tools. You're making platform decisions that allow you to manage everything centrally on Heroku, which I imagine saves a lot of time. How did you end up there? Did you think at the start about where you would put your apps and your data and did you compare Heroku to any other platforms and what drove your decision to really centralize on Heroku? So 
in a previous project, like I had used Heroku before and it was so simple. And although I can code, I'm so slow <laughs> that uh, Heroku is like great for me because I understand like how to turn things on and off. And some of it is just like a UI. Obviously, that not all of it is. But um, the premium that's paid for Heroku is just so worth it. For example, like looking at Kafka, um, we didn't know that we were going to use that in the beginning. We knew we were going to kind of need something like it. But it just seemed like a no-brainer because we needed to get to the point to prove what we were going to need or to, to prove the viability to just go with Heroku mm. because we didn't want to have to like get caught up in the DevOps. I'd also say that I don't know that there's a reason to necessarily leave Heroku given the size of the project and how the end client would like to receive the project. They probably... And I would imagine like most clients would just want something that's just plug and play. And and once you have something up that's working, that's nice, that they like, they could probably just stay with Heroku. And it, and it makes sense to yeah. use like the libraries that have a lot of support so that when we do hit a wall, um, hopefully somebody's been somewhere in the vicinity and we could hopefully find some help. Yeah, absolutely. That's great to hear. I want to zoom out a little bit. So we've been talking about a specific IoT app here. I want to zoom out to Internet of Things in general. We might have listeners who are interested in entering this space who are really curious about it. So I'd be really interested in your personal stories around how did you decide to get started in IoT and, and, and what was it like? Was it intimidating at first? How did you learn? What resources would you recommend for someone else? That's like 15 questions, but <laughs> I'm just really curious. <laughs> well, for, for me personally, the, the first startup team that I was on, it was a pretty small team as well. We were called Bibs, and that was after the runner's Bibs that runners wear. Oh, wow. Yeah. We were looking at RFID equipment and we sort of, built this technology that allowed us to communicate with various RFID hardwares. And that was this value add for all these race directors that have 5Ks, 10Ks, marathons. And so we were able to give them affordable tech that made them more attractive to draw in more athletes. Hmm. Uh, and that was kind of my first intro to Internet of Things. And that's that was uh, over six years ago now. That was where I sort of found out about the internet of things. And I know that the whole innovation tech world just keeps moving forward. And so AI and machine learning right now are, are, are pretty big, but I could also see that the internet of things just has so much more potential. It's just that it's on the enterprise boring side. And so <laughs> it's not like as excitingly disrupting and like flashy. I just think that, uh, it still has a ways to go and it still has a lot of growth. But yeah, so for me, it was with, it was with RFID. And I just like the idea too of something physical. Like I like the idea that there's an object and it's not just all um, an application that's on your phone. It seems yeah. a little bit more personal and there's like a little bit more reward to know that it's like out there in the wild, like impacting this real object or something like that. Yeah, to be able to stand in a yard and know that what you built is playing a role in all of this motion. And, and that, that, that's just wild. And how did you get started, Yuri? I've been developing, uh, not for IoT, but web development for the past five years. And um, before joining NAR, I've never worked with uh, IoT or I've never worked with um, 
in a project where such a, a high reliance uh, in such a high throughput were was needed. So I, I can say that I started here. And for someone listening who might be looking to enter this space or they just think this is really cool and want to learn more about IoT, where would you recommend they look first? The starting of the 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 previous project and startup that I was at, it was kind of just, it was looking around to friends of friends and it was somebody who was a race director and they had to buy this equipment that was really expensive at the time. And I'm sure the prices come down now, but we're just like, wow, why do they have to pay that much for that equipment? And like, what actually is the problem? Uh, can it be cheaper? When we started to like pry out if it was even possible to mess with that RFID equipment, that's where we discovered this opportunity. Granted, it's not a huge industry, like these smaller running events. Obviously people have heard about the LA Marathon, Boston Marathon, but it's just kind of like this niche problem that was in this RFID space. And mm -hmm. and for this particular problem, like I said before, the um, the intermodal industry was something also that that I didn't know about and I wasn't familiar with. But once you start to like really dive into the problem, there's definitely something there that allows you to extract data from these vehicles and these individuals in order to make a better business decision. And that's sort of like what's at the, one of the main things that we're tackling um, with this problem or in this, with this project, I guess I, I could say. Um, so I'm not quite sure how to like yeah. say how you get started. Like it's that there, there's something around you more than likely that somebody you may be related to or that you know that is in an industry that is probably going towards the internet of things or is checking out the idea of like, what is all this stuff? What is the mechanics of our operations? And like, how do we make a better business decision? Diving in there and like becoming obsessed over one of those little corners of these things to be on the internet or slowly coming on the internet is one way of doing it. It wasn't specifically that we wanted to be in intermodal per se, but we liked this problem and working with RMS has actually been really cool because they're, the freedom to sort of build and test and break and move forward is, has been awesome with them. So as we, cause you know, you build something, you're not quite sure what's going to happen sometimes. Yeah. So it's been really cool as we, we've discovered um, some new processes that have been impacting their operations is awesome. Um, but yeah, I would say that sort of like asking around and looking around and, and seeing what industries may be changing and like, what are those things that could be monitored to impact the, that business or that industry's operations? Yeah, I, I would just say that um, another way of um, looking how to get into IoT is to ask yourself about what do you want to learn? What do you want to work with? What do you want to do? Because these, these questions will help you because IoT is so broad. You have so many options and you have so many solutions. You can start with a very small hardware. You can get started with an Arduino device or a Raspberry Pi, or you can even go to, the, to an Android device. So asking yourself about uh, what I wanna do, it's a good way to, to start. If, uh, if you have this in mind, if not, um, any general material will help you get uh, an overview of what's going on in IoT. Great. Wow. Well, this has been a great conversation. I, um, for listeners who 
may be interested in NAR and want to read about some of the projects that you've worked on, where can they go? They want to go to NAR.io, G-N-A-R.io. Well, Brandon, Yuri, thanks so much for being on Codish. It's been a great conversation. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Kari. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.